0: This is the Word of God as it is brought to you from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary <clears throat> was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of God.
1: Good morning. My name is Adam, I'm part of the team here, and it's great to be together this morning. And let me add my thanks uh, to all those who were involved in carols yesterday. We had a wonderful afternoon and evening together, and it was a a huge team effort. I mean, if you walked onto the campus, right from the car park through to the stalls, through to the, the service itself, before the service, after it, There were members of our church family involved, serving and giving of their time, and it just made it the wonderful event that it was. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that was involved for helping us share the message of Jesus with our local community. And let's continue to pray that God might work in the hearts and the lives of those who were there yesterday. I was really proud to be part of our church family yesterday. And now that carols are over for another year, we are well and truly into the Christmas season. And that's why last week we kicked off a new sermon series that we've called Upside Down Christmas. We're turning to the Gospel of Matthew, which is like a biography of Jesus' life. And we're looking at the first two chapters, which tell us the story of Jesus' birth, which we remember and we celebrate at Christmas time. Now, as always, with our sermon series, we have growth group guides available, and as part of the growth group guides for this series, we have what we've called a family worship section. Now, this actually has a Bible reading, a discussion, and an activity for you to do with your family and with your children, if you have them. Now, we've done this not just because we're you know, looking for things to do, we've done this because we want to partner with you and equip you to be intentional about discipling your children about leading them towards Jesus this Christmas. So this is just a simple tool, family worship, in the growth group guide for you to take advantage of. If you don't have a growth group guide, you can grab one from the Connection Center. I would just love to encourage you to make advantage, take advantage of that this Christmas. Now today, we come to the second week in our series. Last week, Ben kicked it off for us as we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, his family history today we come to look at the story of Jesus' birth. Now, according to the UN, the United Nations, there are 250 children, babies born every minute. Now, that amounts to around 130 million babies born each and every year, or about 7,500 babies will be born by the end of this sermon. Some of you are now going to try to work out how long this sermon is going to be. (laughs) Now even though globally the birth rate is declining, that is actually still a, a whole lot of babies. And given the sheer number of babies that are being born, given the sheer number of babies that have been born, it's worth asking the question, why is the birth of Jesus so significant? Why is the birth of Jesus such a big deal? Why do we remember and celebrate it every single year? Why has it had such a lasting impact on our world? I mean, the simple fact is, you would be hard-pressed to find a birth that is more significant than the birth of Jesus Christ. Our calendar is literally divided by his birth. There are billions of people across the globe and throughout history that claim to have had their lives transformed by Jesus Christ, who claim to follow him. This is how historian Philip Schaff describes the influence that Jesus has had on our world. He writes, this Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion, And furnished themes for more sermons, discussions, learned volumes, works of art and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Jesus has undeniably transformed our world. And the question is, why? What makes his birth so significant? Why has he had such a lasting impact on our world? And I want to suggest this morning that we actually see the answer to that question in the story of his birth. We see why Jesus has had such an impact by looking at the circumstances around his birth. And we see why his birth is such good news for real people like you and me living in the real world. Now, if you're a Christian with us this morning, and I know that many of us are, then it's my hope that you might set your eyes afresh on Jesus today to see him for who he really is and what he's done for you. If you're not a Christian, if you're a a guest with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. And my prayer for you is the same, that you would set your eyes on Jesus with fresh hope and fresh vision this morning to see him for who he really is and what he's done for you. So let's turn our attention to this story, and in it, we discover three important truths that I want to highlight about the birth of Jesus and why it's had such a lasting impact on our world. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. It is the miraculous conception of Jesus. Now, the story of Jesus' birth begins in a familiar enough way. It begins with a young couple engaged to be married. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now Mary was probably only around 15 or 16 years old. Joseph was probably around 18 years old, which is young by our standards, but common for that day. And they would have been brought together by their parents. Back then, you wouldn't choose your spouse, but your parents would choose for you. Now that I've had a daughter, I strongly believe we need to bring this system back. (laughs) Though she's not getting married at 15, you know, it's going to be 30 at the earliest. Now, after your parents had come to an agreement, you would marry this person, you would then enter into a period known as a betrothal. It's a one-year period of waiting and living separately after which you would be allowed to live together and and do all that marriage involves. And so Mary and Joseph are in this betrothal period. They're not living together, they're not sleeping together, they're probably barely even seeing each other. And this is what makes the second half of verse 18 so shocking and so scandalous. But before they came together, she, that's Mary, was found to be pregnant so during this betrothal period, not living together, not sleeping together, it is discovered that Mary is pregnant. Now I want you to put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a moment. Can you imagine how painful and humiliating it must have been for him to discover that his wife-to-be was pregnant and the child was not his? Can you imagine his embarrassment, his confusion, his anger? Surely, he must have been tempted to disgrace her. After all, she had disgraced him. Surely, he must have been tempted to make her go through a very public divorce, which would have ruined her reputation, ruined her chance at at finding another husband. And the law would have allowed Joseph to do this. But that's not what he does. Verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So Joseph intends to act with mercy. He assumes, concludes, as we all probably would have, that Mary has done the wrong thing by him. She has this story about the Holy Spirit, but in his mind, that's probably merely just a cover. But he will not humiliate her despite this. He will not shame her. He will divorce her quietly. Now, we could really learn some important lessons from the example of Joseph. Lessons about integrity and and mercy. But this is not actually a, a story about Joseph. This is a story about God. And this is why God intervenes in this story so miraculously. Look at what we read next, verse 20. As Joseph was thinking about all of this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now there are a couple of miraculous things happening in this verse. The first is the angel that appears to Joseph in a dream. But the second and more miraculous by far is the message that the angel brings to Joseph. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to imagine that you're at work or at uni tomorrow and your colleague and your friend says to you, you're a Christian, right? And you say, yes. And they say, let me get this straight. You believe in the virgin birth. You believe that a young girl was made pregnant by God. Now, what would you say? How do you respond? Let's be honest, to believe in the virgin birth of Christ today, it seems to be on par with believing in the the tooth fairy and other mythical figures that I'm not allowed to mention at this time of year. It seems a little bit unscientific, unsophisticated, absurd. It seems, if we're honest, a bit childish in our modern world. Now, I'll admit that the birth of Jesus is out of the ordinary. That's not the way that things usually work. But that's why we tend to use a special word to describe it. Miracle. It is a result of the miraculous intervention of God in our world. And even though on the surface it seems a little bit unscientific, uh, absurd, unsophisticated, the truth is... If the first verse of the Bible is true, if there is a God who created the universe and everything in it, if there is a God who is the source of all life, then surely to put life in the womb of a virgin would not be that big of a deal for him. I mean, if God's involved, it's not that much of a problem. Think about it this way if you were to ask me to build you a house, that's not going to go very well. If you were to ask Troy, one of our elders and a carpenter, to build you a house, not a problem. It depends who's involved. And if God's involved, then the virgin birth is not that much of a problem. Now, you might say to me, but Adam, I don't believe in God. I don't believe that the God created the universe. I believe the Big Bang Theory. I was going to sing the theme song from the TV show, but I decided against it. Now if that's you, if you would say that there is no God, that that our universe is the result of an expansion process, can I humbly suggest that you still believe in a virgin birth? Just one of a different kind. Listen to what Quentin Smith, an atheist philosopher, says about the origin of our universe. He says, the fact of the matter is that the most reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. Now, with all due respect, I'm not sure how that is the most reasonable belief, because that would seem to me to be out of the ordinary, the way that things don't usually work. Physical matter does not generally materialize from nothing. And to put it very simply, this is the belief that we and our universe are virgin-born. So let me ask you, what sounds more implausible to you? To say that we and our universe, that the stars, the galaxies, the mountains, the oceans and everything in it, the animals, that we in all of our complexity, that we are virgin born, that everything has come from nothing, or to say that there is a God who created this universe, who gave life to you and me and everything we see, and that this God is able to create life in the womb of a virgin." It's not a matter of whether we believe in a virgin birth, but it's which virgin birth we choose to accept. And I would argue that the birth of Jesus has had such a long-lasting, such a transforming impact in our world because it is is the result of the miraculous intervention of God in our world. Now, you might say, well, okay, Adam, but, but why did God do it this way? Surely God could have sent Jesus from heaven to earth in any, all kinds of ways. Why the virgin birth? Well, that leads us to the second insight that we gain from this story. The first is the miraculous conception of Jesus. The second is the profound identity of Jesus. Now, who was Jesus? Have you ever asked that question? The truth is, Jesus was most certainly a historical figure. No serious historian doubts that Jesus of Nazareth existed. In fact, in 2014, John Dixon, who's a historian, a professor, he issued the following challenge. He said, Jesus did live. I will eat a page of my Bible. If someone can find me just one full professor of ancient history, classics, or New Testament in an accredited university, Who thinks otherwise? Now John Dixon issued this challenge five years ago and his Bible remains safely uneaten. You see, Jesus was most certainly a historical figure, but the virgin birth also tells us that he was something more. And we see this something more. Matthew spells it out for us in verses 22 to 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The prophet Isaiah, many years earlier, had written this about the coming Messiah, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The miraculous conception of Jesus points us to the profound identity of Jesus. He is God with us. God in human flesh and God in human history. Now that is an incredible claim, that God has not only given his word to us, that God has not only created this world for us, but that God has drawn near to us by becoming one of us. That's an incredible claim. And the amazing thing is, we didn't have to talk God into this. We didn't have to twist his arm. Because the Bible tells us from back to front that the God of the Bible is the with us God. The God who is near to his people. Joshua chapter 1 verse 9, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you. Psalm 23, that well-known psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And now we come to the New Testament and we see that Jesus is God's ultimate forever statement, that he is the with us God that he has come near to us, that he's with us, never to leave us. Now, this is an incredible, life-changing, world-transforming claim. And it has a number of implications for our lives. Firstly, it means if you want to get to know God, you must get to know Jesus. If you want to get to know God, you must get to know Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 puts it this way. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, this is a confronting truth in our day and age. In an age that says, you must define your own truth. You must find God in your own way. And nobody can tell you that you're wrong. But here, we're being told that, no, 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 God has come in his way. God has spoken to us in a specific way in his son. And what this means is that there are not many different ways to God. There are not multiple versions of truth. There is only one way through Jesus. And this is why the key question, the key question when it comes to Christianity, it's not, are you a good person? It's not even, do you believe that God exists? Those are all good and legitimate questions, but the key question is what is your response to Jesus? What is your response to the Son of God who is God with us? This claim demands a response. I mean, God did not sort of show up in Jesus. He either did or he didn't. It's either true or it's not. And so if you want to get to know God, you've got to get to know Jesus. But also, if you want to know that God understands... You must look to Jesus. You know, the coming of Jesus means that God has got down on eye level with us. That God has experienced what we experience. And between, between his birth and his death, Jesus experienced all that you and I experience. Grief, temptation, loneliness, despair, and so forth. He knows what it's like. Now, you might be tempted in your moments of pain and suffering and difficulty to cry out to God, God, where are you? You don't understand what this is like. You don't know what I'm going through. And because God has come near to us in Jesus, he can reply by saying, yes, I do. Jesus can look at your wounds and then point to his wounds and say, I understand. He is the God who has come near to us. One author, Vince Vitale, he, he puts it this way so well, he says there is a depth of relationship that is only possible between people who have been through the worst together. Because of Jesus, because the one who birthed the universe was also born among us, that depth of relationship is possible with God. That is what we celebrate in the incarnation. Now imagine that you're walking through the CBD of Brisbane. You will eventually come across a a homeless person, someone begging on the street corner. Now imagine if you had some change and some money that that you would give it to them. Imagine though that you witnessed someone who not only just gave them some change but gave them the keys to their house and said, I'll live here on the street corner and here are the keys to my home. Imagine someone who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness Jesus has literally come to live on our street corner in all of its mess, in all of its pain in all of its shame and he has given us the keys to our eternal home with God where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and this leads us to the third and final insight that we can gain from this story the first is the miraculous conception of jesus the second the profound identity of jesus and the third the saving mission of jesus we've already asked who is jesus god with us god in the flesh but this still leaves us with the question why did jesus come If I told you that our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was waiting at your home to chat with you after church, the first question you'd have is, why? Why is he there? Why does he want to talk to me? If God has shown up in human history, we must ask the question, why? Thankfully we're given the answer in verse 21, because the angel who who is visiting Joseph, he goes on to say about Mary, she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, the name which literally means God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. This is why Jesus came to save us from the penalty and the power of sin. In other words, Jesus is not only God with us, he is also God to the rescue. He is not only the God who understands our pain and our hurt and our suffering, He is the God who has come to do something about it. And this is the point of Christianity. This is the point of Christmas. Like Ben said last week, Christmas is not ultimately about presents and good food. It's not ultimately about being naughty or nice. It's not even ultimately about family. Christmas is ultimately about a rescue mission. It's about God coming from heaven to earth to rescue and redeem us, to restore a broken and a hurting world in his son, Jesus. You know, I read a story this week about a family that was staying in a hotel in Nigeria. There was a knock on their hotel door and they opened it up and there was a smiling Nigerian gentleman there. He was there to clean their room. Now, the dad who opened the door said he was totally embarrassed. There was bags and clothes and curling irons and towels strewn all over the room. And he began to apologize profusely to this young man. But then this young man graciously replied, and he said, "'Not a problem, sir. This is the reason I've come, to put your things in order. And this is why Jesus has come, to put our lives and our world in order.'" to deal with our mess. God doesn't expect us to clean up the mess. We're not even capable of doing that. But God has come to do it for us. And this is what we remember at Christmas. It's a process that has begun and it's a process that will be finally and fully complete when King Jesus returns. So let me ask you, What's your response to Jesus? He has come to save his people from their sins. Is he your Savior? Is your trust in him? He's far more than a mythical figure or just a good teacher. He is God with us and God to the rescue. He is our King and our Savior. And he has come from heaven to earth to save you. And so we're going to respond now by coming to Lord's Supper, by coming to the table which visibly reminds us of Jesus' rescue mission, to save his people from their sins. See, a little bit later in the the Gospel of Matthew, on the night before he would go to the cross, we read this, Jesus is sitting down with his disciples, they're eating. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to his disciples, saying, "Take and eat, this is my body." Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, "Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See the elements at this table, the bread and the wine, they remind us of what Jesus has done for us: the bread which represents His body and the cup which represents his blood. And so as we prepare to come to the table this morning, I actually would like to read for us a part of the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is an ancient expression of of the Christian faith with a particular focus on the identity and the mission of Jesus. And so it's worth us hearing these words and reflecting on them as we come to the table to remember what Jesus has done for us. This is what we read. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again. According to the scriptures, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. This is the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. This is the purpose, the meaning of Christmas. And so who can come to the table? Well, it's all those who have turned from sin and put their trust in Jesus. It's not the perfect, it's those who are relying on Jesus, resting in his finished work for you for the forgiveness of your sin. If that's you then you come to the table and let me invite those who will be serving us to come and to get into position. If your trust is in Jesus you come to the table. If that's not you then I invite you to use this time to reflect on God's love for you in Christ. Ushers will invite you from the